Hello, and welcome to this bonus episode of the Giants of the Faith podcast. My name is Robert Daniels, and I'm the host of this show. Today, we're taking a look at the winding journey of Nicholas of Myra from 3rd and 4th century church bishop to modern-day Santa Claus. In episode 44, I covered the life of the man Nicholas of Myra, and here we're tracing the history of the real man to the fictional character. And to briefly recap Nicholas's life, he was born into a well-off family of Greek Christians in what is now modern-day Turkey in the late 3rd century. His parents died when he was still a young man, probably a teenager, which left him wealthy, or at least well-off, and he used his wealth to help the needy. One story tells of his tossing gold through the window of a poor father under the cover of night, and that gold landed in the stockings of the man's daughters that had been hung by the fireplace to dry. He later became Bishop of Myra, and he served the church faithfully until his death on December 6, 343. After Nicholas's death, his fame began to spread throughout Christian Europe. Once he was canonized in the 9th century, his feast day, December 6th, became an occasion to give small presents to children. Parents told children that St. Nicholas would bring them presents during the night, but only if they were good children and mindful, as St. Nicholas was seen as a protector of children and he was one of the most popular saints in Europe. But St. Nicholas Day wasn't all good. Children that misbehaved were punished. Some stories tell of Nicholas bringing switches, which are flexible branches used for spangings. I remember that as a boy growing up in the 1980s, my parents telling me about Santa bringing switches. So that part of the legend definitely survived. In other stories, children were threatened with kidnapping or beatings if they were naughty. Often, St. Nicholas was accompanied by a scary companion who was responsible for dealing with the bad children. The most famous of these today is Krampus, but there are others. There's Rucklaws, which means Rough Nicholas. There's Ashenclaws, or Ashy Nicholas. And then my personal favorite, Pellnickel, or Furry Nicholas, to name a few. These scary St. Nicholas sidekicks carried out their mean tasks mostly in the Alpine region of Europe. Now in the Netherlands and Belgium, St. Nicholas is known as Sinterklaas. In those areas, rather than stockings, children would leave out their wooden shoes by the door, hoping that Sinterklaas would fill them with sweets and toys. And it's here where we see St. Nicholas's traditional Santa Claus costume begin to take shape. Bishops in the area were known for wearing red robes, and in the winter, they would wear robes lined with fur and red hats to match. So images of Santa Claus delivering presents to good little Dutch children depicted him wearing a red outfit lined with white fur, proudly riding his snow-white horse. When the Reformation came along in the 16th century, many of the reformers tried to stamp out St. Nicholas Day celebrations as part of a more general movement to end the adoration of the saints. The Calvinist parts of the Netherlands outlawed St. Nicholas Day, but Santa Claus lived on in the hearts of the people. Christians had been celebrating Jesus' birth via the Christ Mass on December 25th since the 4th century in one form or another. Despite the Internet's insistence, there's little to no evidence before the 12th century to tie this festival to any pagan holidays. A Christ Mass is where we get the word Christmas. In Germany, Martin Luther loved the idea of giving gifts, but he wanted to refocus the act onto Christ. So he came up with a Protestant alternative and he reassigned the duties of delivering gifts from St. Nicholas to the Christ child, and he moved the date from St. Nicholas Day on December 6th to Christ's Mass on December 25th. He even coined a new term for baby Jesus, Christ Kindle, which would eventually morph to become the North American Kris Kringle, which has become, ironically, an alternative name for Santa Claus. Around the same time, over in England, Christmas itself was being personified into Father Christmas. 
A Father Christmas represented good times and merrymaking, but for adults, not for children. Father Christmas originally had no particular connection with St. Nicholas, but in time the two would eventually morph together. So now we have St. Nicholas, Christ Kindle, presents for good children, punishment for naughty ones, Father Christmas, stockings, baby Jesus, Santa Claus, fur-lined red clothing, St. Nicholas's feast day on December 6th, and the Christ Mass on December 25th. How do these somewhat disparate ideas come together to form the modern Santa Claus legend? Well, they all get poured into the melting pot that is America, stirred around, filtered a bit, and then spread around the world. Dutch immigrants to the New World brought the red-robed Santa Claus with them. The Germans brought Christ Kindl. The Catholics celebrated Christ's Mass on December 25th. And once these people all lived with and amongst each other, Santa Claus became Santa Claus. Christ Kindl became Kris Kringle and became associated with Santa Claus. And Santa Claus began to do his work on Christmas Eve like the Christ Child had done in Germany. In 1809, American author Washington Irving published his book, Knickerbocker's History of New York. In it, he talks about St. Nicholas flying around New York in his magic wagon, delivering toys to good children and switches to the bad. Then, in 1821, the anonymous poem, The Children's Friend, showed Santa bringing gifts to good children while wearing a red fur-lined costume and riding in a cart pulled by a single reindeer. Two years later, on December 23, 1823, a poem was published in New York's Troy Sentinel that would galvanize the image of Santa Claus for generations to come. A Visit from St. Nicholas was published anonymously, and then it exploded. You'll know this poem as The Night Before Christmas. Eventually, Clement Mark Moore claimed responsibility for the poem, having written it for his children, with no intention of it becoming a global phenomenon. Moore numbered Santa's reindeer at eight, and he named them all. He had Santa dropping down the chimney to deliver toys, and in Moore's tale, all vestiges of a grumpy or dangerous visit were gone. Santa Claus was a jolly fellow, with twinkling eyes, a round jelly-like belly, and merry dimples. And he ended his telling with the famous line, Happy Christmas to all, and to all a good night. In the 1860s, American cartoonist Thomas Nast published a drawing of Santa in Harper's Weekly, which featured Santa's address as Santa Clausville, N.P. N.P., of course, standing for North Pole. Arctic exploration was all the rage when Nast drew his cartoon, and it was an exotic locale that fired the imagination. And the North Pole also offered the convenience of hosting reindeer and having year-round snow. It was a natural destination for Santa's home. So from then on, the North Pole became Santa's permanent address. Santa spread throughout the United States, and then to England, and then to Europe. He began to replace the gift bringers that were traditionally associated with St. Nicholas Day and Christmas. In England, Santa and Father Christmas merged into one character. With the export of American culture through mass media, and as a result of two world wars helping to spread Americanism far and wide, Santa has become one of the most recognizable characters in the world. Even in regions without a large Christian presence, Santa is known. In some places, there are movements in place to hold on to the traditional pre-Santa characters, but Santa's march forward seems inexorable. And that's how St. Nicholas, a humble Greek bishop from the 3rd century, became the global phenomenon known as Santa Claus. As each year passes, Santa's connection to the man who wanted to honor God by using his resources to care for the poor fades. And I think it's important to keep the connection alive 
and to bring St. Nicholas into our modern stories of Santa Claus. Let your children and grandchildren know the origin of the legend and use it as a teaching moment. Use it to strengthen their understanding of the role of Christians in the world. Well, that's it for this bonus episode of Giants of the Faith. I hope you enjoyed it. If you have any feedback, feel free to drop me a line at podcast at giantsofthefaith.com. Until next time, God bless. <laughs>